Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Another horribly sad week for the nation. Three youngsters, three staff members murdered at the Covenant School in Nashville. This is unacceptable. We'll also hear from Albert Moeller on the confusion surrounding the gender of the shooter. The Associated Press had reported that the shooter in this case was a woman. But the woman clearly began to disappear and instead simply became the shooter. Plus, from COVID to CRT to school safety issues, families are looking at homeschooling. We're seeing massive learning losses. There's research that now shows that students have lost anywhere from four to seven months in learning in reading and mathematics. We have all this and more. I'm Don Crow, coming to you from my home station of WAVA in Washington, D.C. You can catch my program each weekday through our live stream at WAVA.com and also through the TuneIn Radio app. Take a moment to follow the Christian Outlook on Twitter at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. We'll start in Nashville and the tragic school shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville. Three students, three adults killed. It's a heartbreaking story that is difficult to process. Gino Geraci, my colleague in Denver, was a chaplain for the police department in Denver at the time of the Columbine massacre in 1999. He turned to Brian Rohrbaugh, who lost his son, Daniel, at Columbine High School. From 94.7, The Word. It is indeed a sad day for our country, obviously for the people involved. But, you know, there's a lot of other considerations here. Right. We, we need to consider our families, our children, uh, our local environment, our, our society as a whole. This is unacceptable. But we need to talk about this on a spiritual level. Yeah. And as we as we bring out the physical facts and then we talk about the cultural and social realities, according to data that was compiled by Education Week, there were 12 school shootings in 2023 up until March 23rd. The FBI data shows 61 mass shootings that took place in 2021, the last year which data is available. And in that twist where the FBI data said only one involved a female suspect of 345 incidents from 2000 to 2019, only 13 involved female shooters. Now, going back to what you said earlier, 345 incidents from 2000 to 2019. And Brian, you're no stranger where you go. What's the threshold? Where, where is the cultural, social threshold where there is a united voice that says, uh, I think we're done now? I mean, we say this every single time. Uh, yes, we do. Um, so I've obviously had a lot of years to think about this. Exactly. And one thing I have noticed in every single instance, the school has escaped the scrutiny that should have happened. In other words, is in school shootings, the common denominator is almost always a public school and almost universally the shooter attended a public school. Now, does that mean the school's responsible? Well, I don't know, but I do know that when you tell people 
as a core belief, the most foundational belief in a public school is there are no absolutes. There is no right or wrong, and you decide for yourself what's right for you. Now, that very teaching lends to the crisis we're seeing right this minute. Will everyone react to it? No, of course not. But some people will. And when you steal the hope from generation after generation after generation, don't be surprised when people do the most terrible things they can think to do to other members of society. At the very beginning of your journey, there were not just hundreds, but perhaps thousands of people who who tried to tell you that education is the cure-all, the be-all, that education is supposed to mitigate social ills, that these are human problems and they require a human solution. But you knew intuitively that that wasn't true. Uh, I, I did know that. And let me just say, I had been forewarned about the public schools. There were already school shootings taking place. Um, there was a local pastor who uh, was teaching, get your kids out of the school. They're not safe there. And I saw it. I looked at it. My son Daniel and I, in fact, saw a TV show together. I believe it was the day of the Paducah, Paducah. Kentucky shooting. And they were in a circle. And my son said to me, why would anyone do that to another person? Right. And so you can imagine the feeling I have today knowing that he was gunned down because I didn't do what I should have. Mm-hmm. I rolled the dice. I pretended that somehow Littleton, Colorado was immune mm-hmm. and that I could keep doing things the way I was. And he died because of it, not through something he did, through something I did. And I want people to think that way about their kids, because it's our responsibility to protect our kids. Can we protect them everywhere? Maybe not. But we can look at the trend and we can look at this story encapsulates all the things Mm -hmm. that are wrong in society. You have someone who believes they can be transgender, who claims they can identify And the public schools are running around saying this is absolutely true. They're saying men can get pregnant and on and on. These things are false. They're stupid. We don't want our kids exposed to them except by us explaining to them what a lost world does. But we don't want to indoctrinate our kids to believe there is no God, there is no right or wrong, that everything's acceptable. Mm -hmm. That that's just not what we're called to do as parents. You know, as kids growing up, we would watch TV back in the late 50s and the early 60s and mid 60s. Milton Berle would put on a dress and he would do a comedy routine. Corporal Klinger would wear a dress to try and get out of the army. But we would all laugh because we knew that it wasn't true. But we seem to have crossed a kind of Rubicon, a threshold, Brian, where there's a growing group of people who are entertaining the notion that what is absurd is true. Yeah, I I think that's exactly right. And when we look back on it now, we can see this stuff is intentional. It wasn't just comedy. It was basically opening the door for a lifestyle that America would reject. And they were going to be fed it, spoon fed very slowly, this type of behavior. 
And now look at it. There's nothing slow about it. It's fast forward. Um, and it's a uh, uh, it's a very dangerous world right now. Our friend Albert Moeller picked up on this confusion surrounding how all of this has been reported from his briefing podcast. Yesterday on the briefing, we saw the switch that took place, and the illustration was the Associated Press coverage. The Associated Press had reported that the shooter in this case was a woman, but the woman clearly began to disappear and instead simply became the shooter. And you had this in other news reports and other wire services as well, where people came back and said, look, it was a woman reported first, but not so much reported now. Now, this becomes really complicated with an article by Emily Schmall that appeared in the New York Times, and it ran relatively early. But the thing to note is that it was updated on Monday afternoon. That's after the trans issue became pretty well identified with this story. And you had this reporter in this particular article in the New York Times reporting that female mass shooters in the United States, in her words, are, quote, extremely rare. They are extremely rare. The particular article here also mentioned a criminologist, Jillian Peterson of Hamline University, who said, quote, while there have been women and girls who have fired guns at school, this is the first female shooter to kill four or more people, end quote. So is this the story of a female shooter? Well, Christians know, yes, it is. That's now been very clearly identified. But is that the way it's being reported in the press? Well, not so much, at least not now. It was, but then it wasn't. And the reason it was, but now it isn't, is because of the media's obsession with the transgender ideology, basically the surrender of mass elites in our culture to the transgender ideology, the new gender ideologies in general, in which you can declare yourself by your personal pronouns or by your somehow sexual minority status. You can identify as a woman even though you are a man. You can identify as a man even though you are a woman. Now, this also just points to something else very sad in this story, which is the inevitable incoherence of even talking about this story once the categories are so horribly mixed. But then we have to ask the question, so just how central should we understand this dimension to be to the entire story? How central is this to the storyline, to our understanding of this horrific crime? And this is where the Nashville police chief actually made an interesting statement by mentioning that this mass shooter had left a manifesto and that the transgender dimension, according to the chief of police, might be a part of this story. Quote, there is a theory to that. There is some theory to that, end quote, he said. That's a very interesting way by saying there's some theory of that to saying, yep, that is something that is playing into the story. We're not sure exactly how or to what extent yet. Now, this leads us to the question of motive. And you just have to understand that human beings made as moral creatures by the Creator We cannot help in the face of even such a staggering crime. You might say, especially in the face of such a staggering crime, we cannot avoid asking the motivation question. Now, the motivation question means, what's the motive? What was the reason, the logic, the rationality behind this particular premeditated crime? And by the way, it was so premeditated that the shooter in this case had devised maps of the school, and remember, she had been a former student at the school, and she took those maps and used the drawings of the facility to plan in detail her murderous attack upon the school. By the way, another footnote, Nashville law enforcement authorities have indicated that they are certain there was a second intended target, but the security there may have deterred the assailant in this case. But again, going back to motive, 
Here's something Christians understand. We do have this hunger to understand motivation for sin, particularly sins on such a murderous level. But at the same time, Christians know that we are not wrong to demand such an answer, to want such an answer, to feel a moral urgency to seek a motive. But at the end of the day, sin is never explicable merely in rational categories. There's always something deeper. There is a deeper rebellion here than human reason can explain. And of course, there is the other reality that a finite human mind cannot be fully comprehended even by another finite human mind. A sinner can understand sin in one sense, but cannot get fully into the head of any other sinner. Coming up, parents turning to homeschooling. And we're seeing massive learning losses. There's research that now shows that students have lost anywhere from four to six to seven months in learning in reading and mathematics. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. This is a particularly challenging time for parents of school-aged children. Our last segment highlighted the latest concern many have over issues of school safety. Then we have the cost and toll over another dangerous model. Kids completely out of school altogether over the course of the pandemic. And, of course, we have a litany of things kids are getting exposed to in the public schools that are at complete odds with the Christian faith. Many families are turning to homeschooling. I turn to Lance Azumi, author of The Homeschool Boom. Talk, if you would, first about the impact of COVID on our kids' educational experiences over the last couple of years and really what it unveiled, what it revealed that was a shock to many parents and even others as to what was actually happening to their children in the typical public school setting. Well, you know, a a huge amount happened. I mean, uh, COVID affected every part of American life, and certainly that was the case with parents and their children. I mean, one day the kids were at school, everything going on pretty much as normal, and then the next day, and for quite some time, especially in many states, the kids were forced to be at home learning through distance learning or remote uh, learning. And one of the problems with that is the schools were totally unprepared to do that pivot from the regular classroom uh, setting to this distance learning. The teachers uh, really had no training in it. Their Zoom education, the Zoom learning that was going on was at best minimal in many cases. And so you had a public school system that was unprepared and therefore they ended up doing this type of learning, this remote learning, very badly in most cases. And so what was the natural result of that is that you had students who suffered huge amounts of learning loss, and we're seeing this play out in uh, test scores that are coming out. There are massive learning losses. There's research that now shows that students have lost anywhere from four to six to seven months in re- learning in reading and mathematics. You had the national test scores showing you know, massive dips in learning, I mean, the, the steepest declines in decades. And so the students are having massive problems. And that's also, uh, you know, not even just talk about the mental and emotional 
problems that students are having. You look at the statistics and you see that there are huge increases in the amount of students who have visited emergency rooms with uh, suicidal thoughts, with mental health issues ranging from anywhere from anxiety and depression to things much more serious than that. And so, you know, you have this huge crisis in American education right now as a result of crisis and the inability of the regular public school systems to address that crisis. And naturally, what happens is that uh, parents look at this and they see how badly off their children are in that situation. And many parents made the natural decision that, look, I'm already supplementing what the public schools are doing, having to teach my kids because they're not learning through their regular public schools anymore. So I'm going to actually homeschool my children and I'm going to pull them out of the regular public schools and, uh, you know, take control of my children's education. And that's what you've seen uh, over the COVID period. The public school unenrollment, you know, parents unenrolling their kids from the regular public schools has hit 2 million kids across the country. And so where have most of those kids been going? Well, some have gone to private schools, some have gone to charter schools, but the vast bulk of them have gone to the homeschooling movement. And you see massive increases in homeschooling across the country. uh, uh, Before COVID, you might have had 5% of kids who were homeschooled, but, you know, in the COVID crisis caused this uh, percentage to mushroom to you have probably now anywhere from uh, 11% to more uh, of kids across the country who are being homeschooled. So you're talking about at least one in 10 kids who are being homeschooled. And it's even more in some communities like African-Americans where you have probably right now going from 3% uh, of the African-American population of families to probably 16 to 18% of African-American families who are homeschooling their kids. And uh, I know that you're in the Washington, D.C. area, Don, and you just look at the states that border D.C., uh, Virginia, you had a 40% increase in homeschooling be- uh, after the pandemic hit. And so there are right now 62,000 students are being homeschooled in Virginia. And uh, if you look in Maryland, you had a 54% increase in homeschooling in Maryland, and that uh, puts the number now to 43,000 kids in Maryland who are being homeschooled. These are huge numbers, and it's all because parents have seen the inability of the schools to deal with the situation and have decided to take control of their children's education. Dr. Azumi, a common myth about homeschooling is that only people with a conservative political viewpoint even do this. They even engage in homeschooling. But you say not so. In fact, it's a uniting factor across the political spectrum. Talk about that. Well, and I think that's another misconception people have, that, you know, only conservatives or only Christians homeschool their children. That couldn't be further from the case. Homeschooling is probably one of the most diverse education movements in the United States right now. And it encompasses not just people from various ethnic backgrounds, but also people from various political backgrounds as well. I profile a homeschool co-op where the two leaders of this co-op are a woman who is a conservative uh, Christian woman and another woman who is a liberal woman who is uh, an agnostic. Yet they came together to form this homeschool co-op across political boundaries, across philosophical boundaries, because they agreed on how they wanted to teach their children and uh, that it was going to be focused 
on learning, on the basics, and it wasn't going to be about politics and indoctrination. And so they were able to form this co-op, which, again, had uh, representation from all diverse backgrounds in their community. So homeschooling really does bring people together in a way that, unfortunately, in this divisive time in which we live, you know, you don't see that going on in schools. And in fact, you see right now public schools being the source of division, not the source of unity amongst our people. I'm sure you're well aware, I can remember, in the early years when homeschooling started, one of the criticisms leveled was it's really isolating your children. It's not giving them any opportunity for social development or social interaction. These people imagine a child sitting at the kitchen table with a parent by his or her side, and that's it. Talk about the fact that the homeschooling does not have to pay a price of lack of social involvement or engagement. Yes, I think that's right, Don. I think one of the biggest misconceptions about homeschooling is that, hey, maybe your child might learn their basics, you know, better homeschooling, but they'll never make any friends. They'll never be able to socialize with other kids. And nothing, again, could be further from the truth. You look at modern homeschooling now, and there are just an incredible array of different types of homeschooling groupings of parents and kids around the country in neighborhoods, in communities, anywhere from homeschool co-ops that I mentioned a little bit earlier uh, to um, things that are called pandemic pods where people get together and bring their kids and they may uh, pool their money to pay for a teacher to teach their kids. All kinds of interesting groupings of kids that you have sports organizations that have grown up amongst homeschoolers so that their kids can have the ability to engage in sports. Many states give students the ability to uh, actually uh, homeschool at home but then also to engage in extracurricular activities at the regular public school uh, in high schools for example, you often have the ability of high school students to co-enroll in local community colleges and take some of the more difficult classes that parents may uh, worry about teaching, you know, at the community college rather than at home, which again gives kids an opportunity to socialize. So there are all these different types of socialization opportunities, and you have the ability as a homeschooler to take your kid on a field trip, you know, not just once a year as it is in many schools, but maybe once a week you know, once a month, whatever, you know, works for you and your child in terms of increasing their learning, you have control over that and you get that ability to uh, increase the socialization of your child. It's not just with kids their own age, but with kids of different ages and with adults so that you end up having kids who are often better socialized as homeschoolers than if they were just in a regular public school with only kids their own age. Coming up, you need the local church. You need it. And Scripture affirms that. Bob Bernie, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to DaybreakInsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's DaybreakInsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's DaybreakInsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Don Crow. I'm just going to watch church from home via live stream. That was something you hardly ever would have heard before the pandemic. Now it's something common. 
And it's part of a broader problem of what I'll just label theological illiteracy. Here's my friend Bob Bernie from The Word, 880 AM in Columbus. Most Americans believe worshiping alone or with just family is a valid replacement for attending church. Brand new study from Lifeway Research in conjunction with Legionnaire Fellowship. It's the Biennial State of Theology Study, sponsored by Legionnaire Ministries. And the percentages of people who believe, I don't need church. I can worship by myself. I don't need to be around other people. I can be in my house. I can watch on TV. The percentage of Americans that believe that has increased rapidly since COVID. In March of 2020, at the start of the COVID pandemic, 58% of Americans said worshiping alone or with one's family was, quoting, a valid replacement for regularly attending church services, with 26% strongly agreeing. Fast forward to 2022. That is now 66% of Americans saying, I don't need a local church. 66%. I can worship just as well all by myself. And by the way, you can worship by yourself. But the Bible is so incredibly clear, so incredibly clear. You and I need fellowship, accountability of other believers. Quote, the study found that over half of Americans don't believe Christians are obligated to join a local church. 36% contend that every Christian must fulfill this obligation. So you got 56% said, you don't need a church. 36% said, yeah, you do need a church. And then the uh, study, the uh, state of theology actually goes downhill after that. Additionally, 67% believe the worship of all religions is acceptable to God. That's universalism. Christianity, Judaism, Islam doesn't make any difference. 67% of Americans believe it's okay. Whatever you believe, you believe. 55% believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. So in other words, 55% of Americans deny the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, 53% believe he was, quote, just a great teacher and not God. 59% do not believe that the Holy Spirit is a personal being, but simply a force. 60% say religious beliefs are subjective rather than objective truth, and it goes on and on and on. America has lost their theology. Why? Because the church has lost its theology. The liberals a long time ago stopped believing the Bible, denying the truth of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture. They did that a long time ago. Today, many evangelicals do not deny the authority of Scripture. They just don't want to 
upset anybody by teaching sound doctrine. They don't want to offend anybody. They don't want to, you know, upset anybody. And it all began with the ridiculous and unscriptural seeker-sensitive movement that swept through evangelicalism like a plague. Don't teach doctrine because doctrine divides. Well, doctrine should be taught with love, compassion, the love of Christ. But we are commanded. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for. Most of you know what's at the top of the list. Number one, above all else, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? Say it out loud, class. Doctrine. Biblical illiteracy in the American church has never been this bad. I expect it in the liberal churches, but it's rampant in evangelical churches as well. Folks, listen, you need the local church. You need it. And Scripture affirms that. Coming up... What does it really mean to be the people of God? Community, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. I resonated with what Bob Bernie was saying in our last segment. The church today is weak, in large part as a result of the biblical and theological illiteracy he was highlighting. Our lack of commitment to the assembling of ourselves together is part of that. Simply put, we need one another. Christian Johnson of CCM Magazine turned to Justin Kendrick, lead pastor of Vox Church in New England. Uh, So what does that actually mean, uh, the sacred us? Who, Who is the sacred? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, on the cover of the book, uh, the sacred is like really pretty and white and the us is really messy and sloppy. And uh, the design was kind of to give us a picture of what we're talking about. And that is that, you know, God created us for community. He created us for deep friendships, for deep relationship. And I think a lot of people today, we want that, but we don't know how to do it. You know, like a a new uh, poll, I just heard more people are honestly confessing that they're lonely than ever. And I think it's been a problem for a long time, but we just haven't been willing to say it. And so I think we all know that we need close relationship, but we just don't know how to do it. And uh, the people of God, that's the sacred us. The church is not supposed to be a program that happens on Sunday. It's supposed to be a people that gather around the truth of God's grace and build family out of it. And so the book kind of explores uh, what does that look like and how in the world do we do it without killing each other. And so uh, so that's the idea behind the sacred us. I know you brought up the pandemic. Um, actually, in the first chapter of the book, you, you kind of talk heavily about the pandemic yep. broke out in 2019 and on through um, still kind of lingering on a bit today, but right. we're, we're finally getting through that. But um, 
you know, what effect did that really have on you and your ministry? And I know it took a toll on a lot of people. Absolutely. Yeah. I think for us, uh, it really forced us to ask some very, very important questions. I mean, looking back through the pandemic, I would say in so many ways, I'm actually grateful for the process God's brought us through, you know, but, um, but it really forced us to ask, like, what do we believe about community? What do we believe about church? What are the essentials, you know, and, and thank God that we can meet over video and that we can use technology. That's awesome. But there's nothing like proximity that, you know, uh, Solomon says, like, uh, better the neighbor next door than the brother far away. Something about being in the same room, being in the same space is essential to our faith. And there's a power in a gathering, a power in the gathered people. And I think the the value of community is so important. So mm-hmm. important. Yeah, I, the word actually says, don't neglect the fellowship of the saints. And, and yeah. together. So I, I think you're head on uh, with that. And, and that's why I'm so glad that you wrote this book. Um, I know you talked even within that, that really you can't please everybody. You know, there were some people complaining about wearing masks or not doing enough. I think one of the things that is it, showed us that we've made uh, minor things, major issues, and that we've actually missed the bigger things. And so like we argued about a lot of things that were secondary about when should we gather, how much. And I, I understand that the people are passionate about these things, but oftentimes it was at the expense of our commitment to the people of God and our commitment to community. And so I think that in our culture and in our time, we've adopted this idea of individualism so deeply that we think, hey, I need a personal relationship with Jesus. And then, yeah, the the church or Christians, they can be like sort of a second thing. But what I talk about in the book a lot is that that's actually just bad theology, that to understand God is to understand that he's actually triune, that he's Father, Son, and Spirit. And there is this dynamic relationship that exists at the center of the Godhead. So if you want to understand God, you have to understand that he's relationship. And the only way that you know him is in the context of relationship. Mm -hmm. And so... So in other words, relationships are not like a secondary issue if you're a follower of Jesus. They're a primary issue. And so it can't be, well, I have a relationship with God, and then I kind of like don't really do church or community. It's like, well, he didn't really leave that option open to us. He said we're a body, and that means that you can't just chop off your hands, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. cut off your legs. And so that's an uncomfortable idea, especially for individuals like we are, right, in our country, in our time. And there's a lot of good things that come with individualism. But I think that one of the bad things is we forgot that God made us to need each other. Even just in the introduction, uh, you had the yeah. phrase uh, less about the things of church and more yeah. about the soul. Um, yeah. you know, so what, what does that really uh, mean? Yeah, you know, I think for 2,000 years, uh, Christians have been arguing about church government, church structures, but that's not what this book is about. This book is about what does it really mean to be the people of God? Like, what does it mean to build deep relationships with followers of Jesus, and how do we do it? In other words, church was never supposed to be a polished program that we attend. It was supposed to be a community of believers that we belong to. And so do I belong to those in my community of faith or is it just peripheral relationships that I leverage for my own desires? I think for a lot of Christians, churches become a routine and uh, I'm not here to critique the routine. People do it different ways. And honestly, I'm open to a lot of ways that you could do church. But my attitude is if you don't have the substance, if you don't know how to go deep in relationship, uh, you're never going to have a deep relationship with God. 
you know, I'll just say, you know, I, I felt like you stepped on some of my toes, you know, just <laughs> as I was going through it, um, you know, because oftentimes we do kind of get in the routine, especially I think the pandemic kind of broke away the family and relationships we were building in church. Yes. Um, so I think that kind of pushed us into our shell. But even just this book made me realize I need to get back relationship oriented instead of just so individualistic about my relationship with God. Yeah, totally. And in the book, I tell the story of Pia Ferenkoff, who is this mm-hmm. this woman who um, she grew up in Boston. She had nine siblings, big family. And uh, years ago, she was found dead in her car in her garage. And the crazy thing about the story, she wasn't murdered. They don't know how she died, but she had been dead. Medical examiners figured out that she had been dead for 1,817 days, that for almost five years, this woman with dozens of nieces and nephews, family members and friends, no one noticed she was gone for almost five years. And that's obviously an extreme example, but that's the world we've created, a world where, hey, everything is automated, everything is direct deposit, everything is ordered online, that we don't actually come face to face with people anymore. And so I'm not against the technology, but my question is, at what cost are we living these automated lives? And I think for a lot of us, um, you know, if we're honest, there really is a loneliness that um, we don't know how to fix. And so in this book, I, I just challenge people to find a few other Christians and start to practice these seven principles and watch what happens. And what you find is, wow, the friendships that I really needed, that I maybe wasn't even willing to like invest in, they're so worth it. They're so worth it. Even though it's hard, they're so worth it. Coming up. I think one of the most dangerous things in any community is is comparison. More with Justin Kenrick when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Come and see, look on this mystery, the Lord of the universe, nailed to a tree. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. The commitment to a church is, first and foremost, the outworking of a person's commitment to Christ. As an outworking of that Christ commitment, the commitment to a church is a disciplined devotion of oneself to a body, a community. We are embodied souls, and we are changed and transformed as we live our lives out with one another. Let's return for a few more minutes of Pastor Justin Kendrick with CCM Magazine's Christian Johnson. I think sometimes we get so caught up in social media, we we don't enjoy life itself as much. You know, you'll see people, they'll go somewhere just to take the picture and not actually enjoy. That's right. It's true. Uh, (laughs) And I think it becomes, I mean, Christian, you know it, I know it. It becomes a comparison train too, where if you're not careful, you see other people that have something you don't. And I think one of the most dangerous things in any community is, is comparison because God's writing a story through your life that's different than the story he's writing through mine. And I think, you know, part of maturing in Jesus is to be okay with that and be able to celebrate what God's doing in Christian right now and not have it be a reflection on what he's not doing in me. There are some principles that you talk about towards the end of the book. Um, Can you share that with us? Yeah, for sure. So I talk about seven different principles in uh, in community that help us go deeper, right? So I'll just give you a couple of them, uh, maybe ones that you don't expect. But one that I think is pretty central is this idea that vulnerability creates connection, you know, that um, that this this whole concept that we can't really have deep connections 
until we start to share the difficult stuff. And I think, you know, again, in our world where we're always filtering and editing and kind of cleaning things up, there's a danger in that because, uh, you know, I don't want anybody in my living room until it's vacuumed and perfect. And, and I think that there are some, sometimes in life, you have to, you have to let people in your living room when it's not vacuumed and perfect, you know, and, and let, let people see you with your hair down because when you do, what you'll find is that they have an unvacuumed living room too. Mm. And that's okay. And, and that's what actually knits our hearts together in a deeper way. And so, you know, you think about the deepest relationships in your life, what are they from? They're from people that you probably went through something difficult with, you know, and you saw ugly sides of them and made it out the other end, you know? And so I think that Christians need to actually learn to be intentional. Paul talks about it in second Corinthians, where he says that his heart is wide open to them. And then he asks them widen your heart. And I like that because, you know, like we, we think open your heart. If you open a door, all you got to do is turn the knob and it opens. But if you widen the door, you got to like take the trim off and knock the wall down. And it's painful, you know? And so widening our lives is going to be difficult. And that's what vulnerability is all about. But then we create connections. So in that chapter, I talk about how do you actually cultivate a life where you're able to be vulnerable and not insecure. And so every principle has some real direct application and then some steps you can take afterwards to apply it into your life. That concludes our program today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, go to ChristianOutlook.com and take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. And never miss these and other great conversations. Thanks for joining us. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pushan and Michael Cook, I'm Don Crow. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook. She ran away in a sleep.